Well, welcome to the final panel of uh, the Madison Projects Conference on Madison Programs Conference on the Public Interest and the Making of American Public Policy, 1965 to 2005. Uh, I think this panel of uh, distinguished uh, personages is an appropriate end to what's been an excellent conference. I don't know that there's ever been so much intelligence and wisdom on one stage at Princeton University since Meryl Streep spoke alone <laughs> last night. She got a slightly bigger crowd, too, I hear, which is extremely, tells you everything you need to know. I could say this as a Harvard person. Tells you everything you need to know about Princeton, you know? Right? <laughs> I don't want to seem obsessed about Meryl Streep. Just, uh, those of you who were here at the beginning 24 hours ago know that she and I checked in at about the same time at the Palmer House and um, she seemed appalled to be in the same place as I was uh, either. Maybe she's just appalled in general to be in the same place as other people, uh, or, or certainly, and maybe she had some sense of who I was and was particularly appalled, but um, I can say that this morning I came down for breakfast at 7.30, figuring she would have made, gone out of her way to want to have breakfast with someone like me staying at the Palmer House. Uh, it turns out Jim Caesar had been down there since five in the morning, hoping that she would join him. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but she had actually heard that Harvey Mansfield was staying there, and of course, he was the one she chose to have breakfast with. No, that's not, no she didn't. <laughs> she would have if she had known that he were there. But, you know, she's a big fan of manliness, Meryl Streep. Um, anyway, enough about Meryl Streep. Um, I will just briefly introduce our panelists who will speak uh, for 10, 12, possibly up to 15 minutes each on, more broadly on the public interest. Uh, I'll say a few words at the end, and uh, uh, then we'll have a, a discussion um, and end at 5.45 or very shortly thereafter. Um, I will be very brief on these introductions um, because Bill McClay has actually already been introduced, and the others need, uh, Bill himself, need very little in the way of introduction. Nat Glazer uh, taught at Harvard University Sociology uh, for many years with great distinction. He was a contributor to the public interest initial issue in 1965 part of the founding circle, I guess, of the public interest, became co-editor in 1973, I believe, and served as co-editor for uh, 30 years. Uh, he and my father stepped up, I guess, uh, in 2003 to become uh, senior um, editorial associates, and Adam Wolfson took over as editor then. So uh, he was associated with the public interest as long as anyone. Uh, many of his essays there and elsewhere are among the most distinguished and distinctive uh, published uh, in the public interest. Um, uh, his books range over many, many topics, uh, religion, ethnicity, uh, one more famous and better than the other. He has a forthcoming book. This gives you some sense of his range. Um, From a Cause to a Style, Modernist Architectures Encounter with the American City. And I would actually say that Nat was key in some of the, uh, I think, most interesting issues of the public interest, uh, both special issues and articles, on questions of public space and architecture, one of many topics that you couldn't say were central, I guess, to the 40 years of the public interest, but where the public interest contribution was quite distinctive and probably central in the sense that unless you were a specialist in the field, you didn't know anything about it, and very few other journals helped uh, stimulate public debate on those kinds of issues. Nacolese will lead off, followed by Bill Bennett, uh, who also wrote uh, several times for the public interest. Uh, I came, Bill Bennett is responsible for many things, one of which, uh, one of his least uh, impressive accomplishments is that uh, he brought me to Washington in 1985 to work for him at the Education Department. Like everyone who comes to Washington, I came for a year. 
uh, uh, just to help out, and I'm still there 21 years later, to the great detriment of the academy, uh, Harvard, the Kennedy School of Government. They, they lament it every day that I'm not still around. <laughs> Actually, all they lament is that they couldn't deny me tenure two or three years later. <laughs> Luckily, I stayed in Washington. Uh, Bill hosts the nationally broadcast and very successful uh, radio show, Bill Bennett's Morning in America. He's the Washington Fellow at the Claremont Institute. Obviously, was chairman of the National Endowment uh, for the Humanities in the first term of the Reagan administration, Secretary of Education for Reagan's second term, and drug czar uh, in the first Bush administration. Uh, his most recent book is the first of two volumes uh, of a history of America entitled America, the Last Best Hope, uh, which I commend to you and which, um, if things go well in the country, will be adopted by more and more high schools and will replace Howard Zinn as the best-selling. <laughs> this is true. He is the best-selling, I believe, author of a high school uh, textbook, a history textbook in America, and Bill is going to be catching up to him over the next couple of years. Um, our third speaker will be Bill McClay whom you've just, we've just heard and who's already been introduced. I used to think, I've always been amused by his chair, the SunTrust Bank Chair of Excellence in Humanities at um, the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, at Chattanooga. But now that I know that he's called by his kids the Sun King, I'm going to forever, I'm sure, get confused and introduce him as the Sun King Chair of <laughs> Excellence in the Humanities um, at uh, Chattanooga. He, his terrific book, The Masterless Self and Society in Modern America, has been out, I think, only 10 years, but is already a classic of an American sort of intellectual history. And he's, uh, he was a value contributor to the public interest, and if I might say, a value contributor to the Weekly Standard and, and many other magazines. And last, and certainly not least, though, well, maybe he is least, I don't know. <laughs> a little political, just preemptive political defense here against Bill. Um, <laughs> is uh, my old friend Bill Galston, uh, who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, has written widely and with real distinction on questions of both public policy and questions of fundamental political philosophy. He taught at Maryland uh, for many years and uh, took leave from Maryland to serve for two years as President Clinton's uh, deputy assistant for domestic policy. Uh, Bill and I share one distinction. Um, he worked in the 80s on, uh, and key roles uh, in the John Anderson, Walter Mondale, and Al Gore presidential campaigns. And I like to always be with Bill because he is the only person around who has as bad a record as I do in terms of uh, losing campaigns. And <laughs> uh, none of the current Democratic presidential candidates has recruited him for some reason. <laughs> it's not true. He, in fact, consults with them all, and, uh, but they keep it quiet so, due to his... Uh, <laughs> um, Bill was a contributor for many, many important pieces uh, to the public interest, and he will uh, he'll speak forth, and then I'll say a few words as, as well, and then we'll have a discussion. So, Nat Glaser. Just start with your mother. <laughs> well, um, I do want to begin by thanking uh, Robert uh, George and the uh, James Madison Institute for hosting this. It may be a little too early uh, after the demise of the public interest to fully uh, 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 gauge its significance, uh, but we've heard some uh, very interesting talks, wonderful talks. I'm impressed with how many people have gone back and looked, particularly at the first issue. I did too, and, <laughs> and subsequent. And uh, uh, 
My, um, what I have to say has mostly been adverted to already. Uh, uh, there is at this point no new deep insight to offer on the public interest and its influence. Nevertheless, I have some thoughts and some remarks on uh, what, what the nature of it was. There will be, I hope, time for the discussion, which we can pursue further. And uh, so uh, these were my thoughts. Uh, the, the public interest, uh, Irving and Dan Bell tell us uh, in their comments, which I hope you have read, uh, uh, had at its origins uh, one uh, major commitment. It was not going to be ideological. Now, uh, Dan had written the end of ideology. Ideology could no longer guide us. I thought he meant socialism. And of, uh, when I said that, and since we've had so many wonderful talks questioning uh, assumptions here, that I asked myself, what do I mean by ideological? Were we against ideas? No, we weren't against ideas. And I won't even try to define ideological, but basically, ideological, it seems to me, is pushing an idea too far. It's a theme that uh, McClay and others have uh, uh, discussed here before. Now, there was another... Uh, uh, commitment. Uh, uh, I would say that this, this non-ideological commitment meant it was not by definition a liberal magazine or a radical magazine or a conservative magazine. It was uh, analytical. That was at least its self-image. It was going to be analytical. I think there was another commitment which was so obvious that uh, it wasn't present in anyone's mind that it was non-partisan. By that I mean it wasn't Democrat, uh, Democratic or Republican. And oddly enough, uh, while uh, in the course of the years it became more and more identified, uh, at least its writers and uh, one of its editors, <laughs> with the Republican Party, uh, at its origins, uh, I, I would say both editors were Democrats and uh, even all the Wall Street funders were Democrats, which is a little odd. Uh, <laughs> there is a reference to the Wall Street uh, f um, uh, types who, who provided the money to get it started, Warren Manchel and uh, uh, Marty Siegel uh, 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 and others. And uh, I told them Wall Street they were involved with finance one way or another, and uh, they were Democrats too. Uh, and one of the two editors, uh, until the very end, was always a Democrat. Actually, it was uh, uh, Daniel Bell, and then it was me. Uh, so there were no initial commitments except to the most obvious ones. Uh, analytical truth, as best one could get to it. Uh, and the public interest, which again, the issue of what that means has been questioned. And I won't, uh, don't think I have any... Uh, uh, deep and uh, a potent uh, definition to provide for it. But it certainly means something different from partial interests and special interests. The journal was to be based on scholarly evidence as to what worked and what didn't. That has been referred to a number of times. And on a sophisticated and mature view on how societies endure and better themselves. Uh, how then did it evolve into one of the two founding journals of neoconservatism? Well, if one looks back, and I have, as many others here have, uh, in making their interesting remarks on the varied areas of policy through which the public interest dealt, one discovers in surprise, it was a surprise to me, I must say, 
that neoconservative that it didn't that the public interest didn't evolve into neoconservatism. It was neoconservative in certain respects from the beginning. I'm using the term in its original sense. The public interest was not neoconservative in the sense which neoconservatism has taken on recently. It couldn't be because neoconservatism today refers almost exclusively to a tendency in foreign and de defense policy, and that was more or less excluded uh, by design from the scope of the new journal in 1965. I was not there at the founding at the beginning. I was teaching in Berkeley when Dan and Irving founded the journal, but I was there as a contributor in the first issue and in many subsequent issues until I replaced uh, Dan Bell as co-editor with Irving in 1973. The harbingers of neoconservatism are visible right there in that first issue of 1965. As the poverty program is being launched, it, uh, to a general enthusiasm among liberals and even radicals. Pat Moynihan had come to Berkeley to participate in a big conference on poverty. All the papers given there later emerged in a book. And we talked there about the, the new journal that uh, Irving and Dan were starting. We also talked about the Vietnam War, as I recall, and I won't get into that. <laughs> and we both had articles on poverty in the first issue of the public interest. Already at that early date, they reflected a less than full liberal commitment as liberal was understood at the time. Now, and that's what surprised me, that we already had our doubts that early. Um, I reported some odd statistics on poverty. It seemed at that time that one quarter of the poor is then statistically defined owned cars, and uh, about a third owned their own homes. And that struck me as a little surprising for poverty. Clearly, poverty could mean different things. Now, I was writing from the perspective of New York City, uh, undoubtedly too parochial a perspective, where even fewer people have cars and own homes. Uh, the public interest, though, steadily questioned the common liberal views on most issues. Uh, we have had some discussion on inequality, and uh, it, uh, that was one of our themes that we addressed uh, a good deal in one of the participants' conference. I've heard so many interesting things said to me, I forget just who said it, said, the fact that you discussed inequality showed how interested you were in it. Well, maybe that is, but we were interested in it, and we kept on saying, it's not as bad as you think. Uh, now, I don't know if we would say that anymore. Of course, we were talking about social mobility, for example, that the people at the bottom did not remain there necessarily. We had statistics on that. And we were talking about the fact that uh, if you look at statistics on poverty, a lot of the poor happen to be graduate students. They are poor, but they don't expect to be poor forever or for long, et cetera, et cetera. So we kept on saying, you know, it's not such a serious matter. We're a mobile and moving uh, uh, society. But, of course, times change. And uh, we even heard uh, um, the, the comment that uh, maybe we're not as mobile as we were, socially mobile. And I would hope if the public interest were uh, being published today, it would take up some of the issues we discussed this morning, uh, where um, uh, uh, the issue is not so much uh, inequality as such, but this 
extravagant explosion of uh, salaries at high levels. I know that we, uh, our speaker this morning said we shouldn't, if we, if we try to do anything about it, it'll be worse than if we don't. That's a real Irvingish remark. <laughs> Nevertheless, it, it, it is something that's become outlandish and perhaps outrageous, and I'm sure the public interest would have discussed it and would have gotten deeper into the inequality issue and perhaps even changed his mind, or some of the authors would have changed their minds, had the weather still coming out. Well, radicals then saw a promise uh, in the intriguing op notion incorporated in the poverty program at the time that the poor should be organized with federal funds to press for their own interests. In that very first issue, I find premonitory echoes of future neoconservatism in my own writing that I didn't expect to, and the similar echoes in Pat Moynihan's article in that first issue. His article was called The Professionalization of Reform, and the very title suggests to you he was having the doubts about how the reforms of the poverty program were being uh, devised and uh, introduced and implemented. Both of us were intrigued by the community action program, which is designed by social work professors who thought they had found the magic bullet that permitted the poor and powerless to get from government what the rich and powerful do. Both of us were skeptical that it would work. We, we were already leery of the ingenious social engineering that comes up with such an approach and expects it to change the conditions of the poor. Again, using the, every term I use, I've been questioning in this questioning environment, and I'm now questioning the term social engineering, because that's a way of putting down uh, a program which you don't like, because some programs we did like. But maybe social engineering is the sort of program which involves uh, too many steps, too many uh, assumptions about how if you do this, that will happen, which will then lead to that, which will then lead to that. In that sense, uh, uh, as uh, has been commented earlier, a somewhat straightforward form of uh, redistribution like Social Security, and it's not fully straightforward, it has its own complexities, seemed more desirable than perhaps the Community Action Program, which hoped to improve the conditions of the poor by uh, first organization and then uh, uh, pressure and then a, a expectations of how local government would respond to that pressure and so on. And of course, the way it finally responded was that the funds for community action were withdrawn by the federal government, owing to the uh, mayors and others who were being uh, attacked by these new uh, social organizations. This note of skepticism was never quite abandoned in the public interest, which was certainly one decisive feature separating, I think, from latter-day neoconservatism. Nothing is quite fully embraced. Consider, the public interest is considered one of the journals that rehabilitated capitalism among intellectuals. Took it seriously, it saw its virtues. At any rate, it rehabilitated it among some intellectuals. We did publish Milton Friedman and Peter Drucker and Murray Weidenbaum and quite a few other economists who saw capitalism's virtues. Uh, but the note of skepticism was never abandoned perhaps now and then, one article or another. But looking back to the 
in the final issue of the public interest I did to a special issue on capitalism today in fall 1970, I was struck by this less than full embrace of capitalism by Irving and Dan at that time. Dan Bell uh, had already, was expounding his views on capitalism and the cultural contradictions of capitalism and he wrote, the deeper and more lasting crisis of capitalism had nothing to do with economics as such or as economic uh, design but is the cultural one. Changes in moral temper and culture are not amenable to social engineering. Well, he used the term, but he put it in quotes. He knew there was a problem. Are not amenable to social engineering or political control. They derive from the values and moral traditions of the society, and these cannot be designed by precept. The ultimate sources are the religious conceptions which undergird a society. And we've heard a good deal more from McClay just earlier on what was the attitude towards religion. But it was certainly different from a lot of other people's attitudes to religion at the time, a lot of, let me say, standard New York intellectuals. So, well, we might expect this from Dan Bell, who has famously said he is a socialist in economics, a conservative in culture, and a liberal in politics. But this was not a criticism of capitalism from a socialist perspective, his socialist perspective. It was a criticism really from his cultural perspective, his conservative cultural perspective. And Irving was, despite one would think, his very different perspective, because he would describe himself as neoconservative across the board and has, in full agreement. A deeper agreement, I think, than their division on whether to support Nixon or McGovern in 1972. Irving wrote in the same issue that capitalism had promised three things, affluence, individual liberty, and, and here I quote from him, the promise that the individual could satisfy his instinct for self-perfection, for leading a virtuous life that satisfies his, satisfied his spirit, as one, as one used, used to say, his soul. But the third promise of a virtuous life and a just society was subverted by the dynamics of capitalism itself, as it strove to fulfill the other two, affluence and liberty. Uh, well, as we've heard a few times, Irving titled one of his books, and one of his most important essays, Two Cheers for Capitalism. Two cheers, not more. And it didn't make it easy to lead that virtuous life, that life that satisfied people. Now, uh, earlier, John DiIulio said something which I should have recorded on what was the, uh, what did the public interest think was the good life or the, and, uh, I didn't record the words, but when he described what the good life was, let me say it was not a life that involved greatness or the greatest things. It was really, uh, that was a public interest view at the time. Now Irving, looking back, sees in his comments an aspiration to greatness, but it really wasn't there. It was an ordinary life. The ordinary life, the satisfied life, the satisfactory life, and that was all uh, that was being aimed for. 
in terms of domestic policy. And uh, we weren't looking for the greatest things. We were looking for revolution. We weren't looking for uh, the best society. Now, I wrote in that last issue, the concern over an economic order whose incentives meant that it steadily promoted hedonism, as Dan put it, and was drawing upon an ethic and morality that was not being replaced, call it the Protestant ethic or traditional religion or morality or classic political philosophy, this concern was a steady one, evident at the beginning, still evident at the end. We were all followers of, of Lionel Trilling, as he was of Matthew Arnold, brooding over the melancholy, long, withdrawing roar of the sea of faith. And again, that was uh, McClay's, uh, and that was our view. Uh, none of us are really religious, and maybe you can put us down as saying we thought religion was good for society and good for other people, and, uh, but we felt that as it drew down, uh, there were problems developing. Uh, the problems we heard about from Kay Hamowitz and uh, so many others who have spoken here. Well, these were early days for the public interest, but the themes that, uh, that were raised only became stronger over the years, perhaps too strong. We worried about the family, about the decay of traditional values, looked more favorably on religion. Though what it could do for a society, uh, through what it could do for a society, even though we could not embrace it. And uh, uh, it's true that, as uh, McClay put it, we had a consequentialist, uh, of course, Irving and Dan might disagree, or a, uh, a utilitarian view of religion. Uh, we became open to points of view that in our earlier liberal or radical days, days we would have found outlandish uh, or simply outside the realm of discussion. But we never, almost never, became enthusiasts. Uh, anchored to evidence in the social sciences, we could not. The better the test, as Pete Rossi once put it, that is, the closer the effect of any designed, inter uh, the better we test any designed intervention in life, the closer the effects are zero. Uh, that, is, that leads you to calmness. In other words, uh, it's hard to change things. Uh, perhaps that hasn't been expressed too well, but Pete Rossi put it first, and Pat Moynihan used to repeat it a great deal. Uh, our openness to the social sciences also meant that our neoconservatism never closed us off from the academy, which is overwhelmingly liberal. Here I might point out in terms of discussion, well, what was wrong with the social science that we were always uh, attacking with other social scientists? Uh, I will just make a sociological point on what our problem was. There had been a huge infusion into the social sciences of ex-socialists, Jews mostly, uh, who, uh, who were of li uh, radical inclination turning to liberal. And of course, the research they did reflected their point of view. C. Wright Mills, about this time, just about the time this encouragement was beginning, uh, wrote a, an interesting article about the earlier phase of social science when most uh, social scientists or a large number of them were ministers' children. Well, ministers' children, Protestant ministers' children, would have a different point of view from 
uh, Jewish garment workers' children. And so that, uh, that's a crude way of putting what one of the problems of the social sciences was at the time. As I say, we never became enthusiasts, and we uh, uh, were always open to the academy, even if critical of it. Uh, the, so, uh, and that was always a problem because of the liberal inclination of the academy, which often took, uh, led them, we think, ill-advisedly on the basis of their research, which is oriented towards uh, pursuing their agenda, uh, led to results that we thought were not sound and were not good for society. That was a bit of a problem, but we always kept the door open and social scientists doing good work almost always wanted to be published in the public interest despite our expanding neoconservative slant. Now, I was the editor who served as a de facto delegate to the social sciences uh, Dan had before. I, inevitably, I did because I was at a university and in a university town. Um, and... Uh, uh, and I sort of kept up the social science end, and some of those uh, odd articles that might have been mentioned here were those from uh, people who I thought had made a good point, even if they were against the prevailing views of the uh, public interest. The, um, and I always worried about uh, being open to the social scientists. Uh, but then things changed. Other journals modeled on the in one way or another on the public interest, uh, even to the point of the kind of name they took. Consider the American Prospect, for example, which started like a counter-public interest. They began to appear. It became harder to get liberal social scientists to contribute, but that avenue, I'm happy to say, was never fully closed off. Now, I, how did the neoconservatism of the public interest morph into the neoconservatism of today? The connections are not easily evident. When Peter Steinfeld wrote that, that first book on neoconservatives in 1978, he talked about a number of people, Daniel Bell, Diana P. Moynihan, Irving Crystal, myself, but only one of us fully accepted the label. That was Irving. Uh, one bridge from neoconservatism, one, I would call it the neoconservatism, the public interest, the domestic neoconservatism, to neoconservatism, two, foreign policy conservatism, one bridge was commentary. Irving and I had both been editors of commentary and were friends of Norman Podhoris, and of course commentary had to be concerned about foreign policy, because it was a Jewish magazine concerned with the fate of Israel and the Jewish people. And we were concerned, too. But commentary did not devote much energy or space to the social issues that defined neoconservatism. It had articles criticizing affirmative action, which was one defining issue for neoconservatism, but it really didn't talk much about social issues after the first few years of the editorship of Norman Podhoritz. During those early years, indeed, commentary could better be described as radical rather than liberal. There, was really no, there are really no organic links, I believe, between neoconservatism, one, the neoconservatism of the public interest, and neoconservatism, two, the neoconservatism of today. The fact that all the neoconservatives of the 1970s were strong anti-communists 
the residue of their earlier political lives as socialists could have led them to the foreign policy stance that defines today's neoconservatism, but in fact it didn't. The neoconservatives of the 1970s, whatever their agreement on communism, diverged on foreign policy in the course of the 80s and 90s. But fortunately, the public interest was not the medium in which their divergence could be exhibited, which was all for the best, so the divergence showed up elsewhere. Nor did the Jewish connections of the early neoconservatives necessarily lead to neoconservatism too. That concern for the fate of Israel and the Jewish people could lead to very different foreign policy stances. In the political campaign of 1972, Milton Himmelfarb, Gertrude Himmelfarb's brother, Irving Crystal's brother-in-law, uh, wrote an article and commentary arguing for Nixon. He, he argued, would be more dependable as a supporter of Israel than McGovern. I counted with an article supporting McGovern. So one could go in different directions. But none of this, or hardly any of it, bore on the editorial issues we dealt with in the public interest, where I became an editor shortly after my article favoring McGovern. We really deal with two different tendencies, I'm concluding now, one in domestic policy and one in foreign policy. One determinedly, in its uh, self-image and its efforts, empirical and sober, Manon Tropo, as we heard. Uh, the other, uh, elaborating a more extended ideology and enthusiastic about it. One, I think, eschewing greatness, and the other, at least, hoping for it. The connections between them are more personal and genealogical than substantive, I think, and I cannot discern any substantial link in style and content that connects the two. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. A little, um, speaking of music, a little lighter motif maybe. Uh, the public interest, some other considerations or other matters, uh, personal, anecdotal, um, and uh, stories. Great uh, to be uh, at Princeton. Uh, Robbie, you are to be congratulated uh, for doing it. I, I, by my count, there are more Harvard authors in the public interest than Princeton. And I guess they could have had it. Do you have a John Quincy Adams Center, perhaps, at, uh, at Harvard? But it'll, the Madison Center will have to do. And, but we can get uh, subscriptions to the public interest for the Harvard guys, and, along with U.S. News and World Report with the college rankings and so on. And you could all look at that. Um, <clears throat> inside joke. The... Uh, there are students who've joined us, four students, I take special interest because I know, know them, I know one of them very well, my son sitting next to his professor, which is smart since you don't have your grade yet. <laughs> and um, they've spent the afternoon, I'm told, at the Firestone Library, so good to have you guys for four more lectures on a Friday afternoon. Friday afternoon classes, can you imagine such a thing? Anyway, um, and Harvey, as to that Princeton-Harvard co-championship in football, yes, and, but when they played each other, only one team won. You understand? Okay. Social science, I'm a, I'm a philosopher, so I can say this 
<clears throat> maybe not with impunity, but without guilt. Social science is the elaborate demonstration of the obvious by methods that are obscure. And <clears throat> I've always, good social science, um, <laughs> such, such, such as the boy-girl, uh, such as the boy-girl stuff. It's a very distinguished meeting for lots of reasons. I realized last night at the reception that two people are at this conference who hold a distinct honor. The only two people I know uh, on this earth who are banned from Las Vegas because of their ability to count cards, Bill Galston and John DiIulio, uh, were both at this conference, which makes three of us who are banned from uh, Las Vegas for the time being. Anyway, uh, hope, non-tropo, you know? Uh, relax. Anyway, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Irving. And uh, I don't want to sound, you know, like an epitaph, uh, but, I, but I, I can't talk about the public interest and its impact on me without talking about Irving. Great regard for, for Nat Glazer for reasons you just heard uh, from his own, uh, his own testimony and Dan Bell. But Irving Crystal was a very important person uh, in my life. So I back and forth in my remarks. Uh, I went back and forth uh, wondering whether he'd be here or not. And I'm kind of glad he's not because I was thinking of that great scene in Annie Hall, the Woody Allen movie, where... They're standing in line, and this guy is holding forth about Marshall McLuhan, and it's a long line, and they're not getting anywhere, and this guy is going on and on and on, and then finally Alan, and his genius, produces Marshall McLuhan, who <laughs> comes up to the guy and says, I heard what you're saying. You know nothing of my work. Uh, how did you ever get to teach a course in anything? And if Irving were sitting here, that's what he'd say, but, but <clears throat> the genes are, you know, are strong, and... Uh, Frankly, after Bill's introduction, I thought we should go right to rebuttal rather than to, uh, to, to comments. But just, uh, I've known a ton of people who uh, had that job at the public interest, the managing editor. And it's a heck of a job, apparently. Uh, Bob Asahina, who was my editor at, uh, at Simon Schuster, and uh, more recently, Jason Birch. Uh, Birch, 25 years old, out of uh, Davidson College and a couple of fellowships, uh, goes to the public interest his first day. He's fresh from grad school. Irving welcomes him to the office, hands him a stack of papers, and says, edit these soon. They're for our next issue. So this 25-year-old kid was handed uh, papers by, he says he wrote it down, never forgot it, Matt Glazer, Charles Krauthammer, Irving Crystal, Glenn Lowry, Pat Moynihan, Charles Murray, George Will, James Wilson, and Roger Starr. Well... <laughs> He said, that wasn't the worst part. I said, what was the worst part? He said, the working conditions. <laughs> Small, smoke-filled room. But he said, at uh, around noon, Irving said, all right, take a break. Uh, how about lunch? And uh, he thought, well, maybe 19th Street, the Palm. Irving said, get me a pastrami sandwich. Get whatever you want. <clears throat> Come back. We'll keep working. So um, the, stories are, uh, the stories are legendary. Um, public interest got me my job. I don't know if that has been said yet in these two days. I was, uh, my first job in government, I got Bill Crystal his first job in government, but Irving Crystal, public interest, got me my first job in government. I was recommended um, to be chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Uh, I tell people Ronald Reagan was looking for a chairman of NEH, and so they began a nationwide search to find a professor of the humanities who had voted for Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> there were three of us uh, at the time. And I was the second choice after Mel Bradford. Uh, Bradford came to town. He was the choice, and he started to criticize Lincoln. Not, not a good idea. 
Uh, not a good idea in any circumstance, virtually. But so I was the second choice, and um, so I, I called Irving and said, I, I'm going to be nominated. He said, fine. He said, shut up. I said, what? He said, shut up. Don't say anything. I said, but I'd like to just give it. He said, shut up. <laughs> when you're confirmed, you can talk. And he, I, since I was confirmed, I haven't stopped talking for good or ill. So it's, a, it's not, I have a radio show. Uh, anyway, um, I was having problems because, as White House personnel said, the president likes you a lot, we like you a lot, but your home state senators don't like you at all. Uh, my home state senators were John East and Jesse Helms. Uh, John East was called the conservative senator from North Carolina. Uh, I had met them both a couple times, but someone had sent uh, some information that I had a picture of Martin Luther King up in my office. King resting on a march, uh, Birmingham. Indeed, this picture was up. I was a conservative, but not tropo, whatever you call it. And uh, <laughs> I'll take it too far. And um, so there was some question. But uh, then it got worse because Pat Buchanan, you may remember Pat Buchanan, um, wrote an article, uh, an editorial, and said, Ronald Reagan cannot appoint this man. Uh, here's the resume. He went to Williams College. He went to Harvard. Uh, he has a PhD in philosophy. This man can't conceivably be conservative by any stretch of the imagination with that kind of resume. I saw more, uh, uh, Buchanan later and said, reminded me, left out something, which was Gonzaga High School his high school, and we beat St. John's, unlike his class. Anyway, uh, another story, another time. But um, so I had this problem. She said, we may have to pull you uh, unless somebody can uh, vouch for you. I said, well, maybe the Heritage guys, maybe Fulner. Uh, and so a meeting was set up with Fulner. Fulner wasn't briefed on um, who I was or what I'd done. So I came in, and he... Fuller likes to wear the glasses down the end of his nose, you know, especially when he's not sure he likes you or he's going to say yes. So he said, and who are you, Alice in Wonderland? And uh, why should we recommend you? And Is this pedigree true? Uh, yes. Have you ever written anything for the public interest? And I said, yes. I, uh, I wrote moral education in the schools. He said, not familiar with it. I said, reprinted by the Heritage Foundation. I said, oh, oh, you're that Bennett. <laughs> and, uh, I was confirmed. That was it. So, moral education in schools. It, it was a good article, not a memorable article. I know it's not a memorable article because uh, last night Nat said, so glad you're here. Good of you to come. You never wrote for the public interest, did you? Uh, <laughs> three non-memorable uh, articles, all in 1978. It was a, it was a very good year. Anyway, uh, last story, and it is about... Uh, about Irving, who has been a trusted friend and advisor since, since that time, and I have uh, learned to take his advice and judgment very seriously. This is a very, very typical uh, Irving story. Uh, before the NEH thing, I had a career to path decision to make, and uh, so I asked Irving if he'd have lunch with me. He said, sure, give me a pastrami sandwich, go whatever you want, come on over. Anyway, uh, so uh, I went up to see him, and before I went to see him, I went to see Midge Dector. We were working on a book together. She said, where are you going from here? I said, I've got a career decision. I'm going to go, go get Irving's advice. She said, Irving is wonderful. Irving is brilliant. Listen to whatever he says. Do the opposite. <laughs> so I kept it in mind. I went to see Irving, laid out the whole thing. He talked. It was this, it was that, this consideration, that consideration. He said, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. 
you should probably do what you want. But that's my advice. He said, actually, you should probably do the opposite. Uh, I told you I was trained in philosophy, but that was too much. It's too much. Negative, negative, negative. Anyway, it's the only time I, I didn't take his advice. I don't think. I'm still not sure uh, this day. Thank you very much. Thank you, public interest. How am I supposed to follow that? Uh, <laughs> um, I just wanted to uh, say a couple of uh, things about the the the, uh, the name of the journal um, because I think there's some interesting um, sort of buried history there and some sort of implicit debates with as aspects of the American past that I think are going on. Uh, it it's really I think a play on a theme coming out of the progressive era, and we historians are always very nervous about even talking about the progressive era with a capital P because it's a, it's a uh, sort of a nebulous thing. But, uh, but I'm going to do it anyway, uh, since you're, you're all political scientists and you won't know the difference. Uh, um, uh, and, and this theme is that the notion that, uh, that there is such a thing as the public interest, that the public was an entity distinct from the interests, which in that era uh, referred to uh, the uh, uh, sources of, of power in American culture that were aggregated by the force of industrial capitalism. And uh, so that the interests really was a shorthand for you know, Standard Oil and all the, all the things that Ida Tarbell and people like that wrote against uh, and that the muckrakers uh, uh, were interested in. Um, and uh, so the public interest uh, was a way of, um, of asserting that not only did, uh, did large industrial concerns, the banks and so on, uh, represent interest, but there was this thing, the public, which also had an interest, and that, and that government ought to play the role of representing that interest, which was otherwise unrepresented in the structure of industrial capitalism. So... Um, and the, the, there was uh, and the ideal of enlightened leaders in that era was a, a standard of disinterestedness, a word that has just been completely lost to our time uh, in its original acceptation, but would be worth bringing back. And actually, it, it, the word occurs, I was just checking, Bill Galston has that first uh, article there. And indeed, they do uh, quote Walter Lippmann and uh, quote his... Uh, unironic use of the term disinterested as a goal of, uh, of social science. And that's, in a way, my, my point uh, that I'm at least leading to. So the, the, the progressives uh, had the notion there was a public, um, there was a public interest. And thinkers like John Dewey, I think, uh, elaborated this to a very high degree. Uh, uh, and in the process, as uh, someone, I think Harmony Vansfield, made this point that... Uh, uh, saw uh, science and democracy as mu mutually supportive and mutually enhancing, that science was the principal source of disinterested knowledge, and science progressed, including science about uh, the nature of human society, and was applied uh, to it by disinterested leaders, uh, social progress would naturally ensue. Um, well, Walter Lippmann, uh, from whom Irving says that he got the, uh, the name of the magazine, 
Uh, actually, uh, well, he had a multifaceted career, but one of the facets of his career, he, he was involved in deconstructing that whole idea, uh, the whole progressive notion of the public. And uh, books like uh, The Phantom Public, which I think was published in 1925 or sometime in the mid to late 20s. Um, and uh, uh, there was no such thing as the public interest. There was really no such thing as the public. This was a, a, a kind of what we would call a mystification, uh, a, uh, a, a sort of imaginary construction, um, and that we were much better off thinking in terms of, of society in a kind of uh, unmediated Federalist 10 sort of way of a collision of interests and in that at the most the state could be a kind of broker among these interests, but that uh, uh, it really had nothing to contribute that could be disinterested. The disinterestedness itself was a, was a null set, an empty category. Uh, th this obviously uh, was not, didn't conquer all, but it was a, a, a sobering influence on the, the progressive idea of the public interest. And, uh, and, uh, and as a consequence, what you see increasingly, and I'm really compressing a lot here, is uh, the growing sense that the public interest is, if it existed, had to be something administered from outside the collision of interests in society by, um, uh, by courts, by regulatory agencies, by extra democratic forces, uh, which ultimately have their home uh, in academia. Uh, the, a, a kind of pinnacle of this use of the term public interest is reached, and the, this first article in the first number complains about it, in, uh, in the use of the term public interest law, or, or Ralph, the, what I call the Ralph Naderization of the idea of public interest, you know, PIRG, the Public Interest Research Group, uh, which purported to represent the public, but in fact uh, uh, represented only a particular understanding and not necessarily even a particularly disinterested understanding of what the public interest might be. So it's at this point that the magazine is founded. Uh, so uh, there, there is in a certain sense an ironic tone to its adoption of this term uh, uh, since this is exactly the kind of, uh, of uh, way of talking about public life that, that the public interest was founded to counter. Um, but I would argue that, in fact, uh, the magazine was always about trying to reclaim that word, not to, um, was it mend it, don't end it? Would that be an <laughs> appropriate <laughs> way to put it? Um, it replace a more skeptical, uh, in some ways conservative, but also ultimately liberal, at least reformist sensibility. Um, skeptical about the ability of intellectuals to know uh, how society operates, or bureaucrats to administer it. Um, but uh, it, it seems to me the, the titling of the magazine was an effort to, uh, to reclaim the term uh, for, for a different kind of sensibility, uh, one that uh, was uh, uh, willing to assert that in some way, uh, contra uh, this sort of nihilism, in a sense of the, of the Lippmann of the 20s, uh, there was such a thing. There was, uh, it was more problematic, perhaps, than the progressives had thought it was. Uh, but uh, just as objectivity is a more problematic standard, just as disinterestedness is a more problematic standard, but that these were standards worth 
trying to preserve, worth trying to defend, rather than merely trashing. So I, I think in some strange sense, uh, and Irving, Irving probably wouldn't like this characterization, but I think in some strange sense the magazine was trying to extract from progressivism that part that, uh, that remained viable. Um, two other things. One, one is I, I, I don't know that we've really said enough about how great uh, the writing in the magazine is, just simply as prose. Uh, it was uh, 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 almost without exception uh, uh, pellucid writing, lucid and pellucid, and, and uh, uh, had the ability of, to convey uh, extremely complicated ideas in a way that was uh, direct without being oversimplified. If I, uh, I mean, in some ways, I think that uh, Irving and Nat themselves embody this to an extraordinary degree. I think even more than Dan Bell. Um, if if you would like to see some examples of the, some of the most extraordinary uh, compression of uh, complicated social scientific thought uh, without any loss of complexity, look at the columns that Nat wrote for Commentary back in the 40s under the, uh, the heading of the study of man. They're just magnificent and, uh, and, and a great, uh, great help to graduate students who are trying to get, get a kind of quick fix on <laughs> this or that work of Max Weber. Just read, uh, read Nat Glazer and you'll have it. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and Irving had this ability too. And, I, and by the way, the handouts that we were given seemed to me, uh, both in Dan Bell's case and in Irving's case, to, to uh, uh, give, give a, a, a glimpse which in my case I find very poignant that uh, Irving is just as good as he ever was. You know, he has this great line in one of them about uh, uh, one of the paragraphs about uh, how uh, World War I had ended with the famous promise of returning soldiers to a world fit for heroes. It's only a slight exaggeration to say World War II ended with a commitment to a world fit for victims. Talking, talking about Europe. Uh, uh, beautiful. He had that uh, epigrammatic uh, gift. Uh, and made it look very easy. In fact, I, I have, uh, uh, to segue in my next point, I've sometimes thought of him as a, a sort of Willie Mays of writers. I don't know whether he'd like that comparison either, uh, but I could see him doing the, the um, literary equivalent of a basket catch uh, over the head and making it, uh, making it look easy. However, he's unlike Willie Mays in another respect, is that he, uh, he didn't stay too long. Uh, he, um, he went out when we all uh, still wanted more. Uh, uh, they, they said that the, it was a middle-aged journal from the beginning, and in fact, 40 years is uh, uh, a uh, substantial length of time for a periodical. Uh, but I think one could say that the public interest ended in the, in the prime of life, which some of us like to think uh, extends beyond 40, but, uh, but certainly 40 is a good enough number. Um, and uh, something I will steal from Leon Cass, who I heard say this, and I thought was very, uh, very fine statement, that the, the number 40, of course, has great significance in uh, Jewish tradition. And um, you know, with a lo lots of different ways, uh, uh, you know, uh, wandering in the wilderness, uh, <laughs> uh, years, uh, days in the, in the desert, undergoing temptation uh, in the Christian uh, tradition. Um, but uh, Leon pointed out that 40 also is the number of weeks in gestation. And uh, th this was at the final dinner for the magazine. I was honored to serve on the, on the editorial board for the last few years before the end of it. 
I hope I didn't have anything to do with it actually ending. I, I, uh, <laughs> and uh, Cass, uh, Leon Cass made these remarks on that occasion. And it struck me as, uh, as, a, as a, a not, un, not, not without sentimental side to it, I, which I'll confess to, but, but also a way of celebrating the fact that the magazine is, uh, is maybe uh, just the beginning of something something that the New Atlantis, uh, as has been alluded before, Eric Cohen's magazine is, a, is, is very much a fresh sprout, a fresh uh, expression of some of the same ideas. So I leave you with that thought, that, uh, that the, 40, the 40 years of gestation uh, ha have more things to give birth to in the years to come. I feel like a boxer who's battered and bruised before he even enters the ring. <laughs> uh, uh, I could not think of a safe way of, of responding to Bill Bennett's uh, riff on gambling. I want to promise him, however, that I will not report the substance of his remarks to his wife. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and as for, you know, as for Bill Crystal's introduction of me, if that's what you want to call it, uh, you know, uh, you know, it you know it reveals what I think of as a characteristic inability to distinguish between preemption and prevention. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm just going to leave that right there. Uh, <laughs> uh, I. Uh, uh, the thrust of my remarks is much less elegiacal and more forward-looking uh, than, than what you've heard up to now. Uh, it is, in fact, a kind of political homily, and every homily needs a good text. I have three wonderful texts, uh, all drawn from the public interest. Uh, the first is the very first thing ever printed in any issue of the public interest, the editor's little introduction called, What is the Public Interest? And let me just read a little bit from it. Uh, the aim of the public interest is at once modest and presumptuous. It is to help all of us, when we discuss issues of public policy, to know a little better what we are talking about and preferably in time to make such knowledge effective. Modest and presumptuous indeed. Now, uh, Irving Crystal and Daniel Bell go on a little while later to spell out some of the implications of this modest but presumptuous aim. Uh, they say, among other things, such an emphasis is not easily reconcilable with a prior commitment to an ideology, whether it be liberal, conservative, or radical. For it is the nature of ideology to preconceive reality, and it is exactly such preconceptions that are the worst hindrances to knowing what one is talking about. Now, having said that, they go on to make a really important distinction, which will structure some of the remarks to come. They say, it goes without saying that human thought and action is impossible without some kinds of preconceptions, philosophical, religious, moral, or whatever, 
since it is these that establish the purposes of all thought and action. But it is the essential peculiarity of ideologies that they do not simply prescribe ends, but also insistently propose prefabricated interpretations of existing social realities, interpretations that bitterly resist all sensible revision. So what we have here is a picture of, on the one hand, sources of ends, philosophy, religion, morality, and on the other hand, the domain of ideology, which is a constructed as opposed to an empirical account of the way society actually exists and the way it actually works. And in a forward-looking spirit, uh, I would remark that the editors are entirely even-handed as to whether ideology is to be found at one point along the political spectrum or any other point. I think it is entirely fair to say that at the time this journal began, these sorts of ideological preconceptions were much more likely to be found on the left. My first question, perhaps for discussion afterwards, is whether that is true any longer. Uh, I asked Erwin Stelzer at lunch today whether the public interest had ever published an article or two empirically assessing uh, some of the more advanced claims of supply-side economists. What I didn't say at the time, but we'll say then, is that we'll say now, is that if the public interest had done so, we would have been spared about a quarter of a century of Wall Street Journal editorials. Uh, now, uh, but the, this opening essay not only defined the magazine, it also, as, as Bill McClay has, has suggested, attempted to define the public interest. And I think this is also a matter, is a matter of some importance. Uh, it is not often enough remarked that the public interest was conceived in explicit opposition to the reigning paradigm of political science in the 1950s and the 1960s. You know, the pluralist paradigm uh, that we associate with people such as David Truman and especially Robert Dahl. And what was characteristic of the pluralist paradigm was the division of the social and political world into interests group, interest groups such that there, were no, there was no public interest but only an aggregation of colliding and struggling private interests. Now, the public interest rejected this understanding of politics in two senses. First of all, uh, Bristol and, and Bell rejected the proposition that human beings are at all times and in all ways self-seeking or self-interested. They say, it may be true that all men are self-seeking. It is demonstrably untrue that all men are always and in all respects self-seeking. In other words, as political and social beings, we have the capacity to reach beyond, to overcome at least temporarily, uh, the worse angels of our nature, and to take a broader view, perhaps to take the interests of others as seriously as we take our own. It is certainly not the case, according to this account, that whenever ideas or doctrines are put forward in the public square, 
They are concealed self-interest. This account of human motivation opens up the possibility that people can disagree, disagree vehemently in politics, and nonetheless understand themselves and one another as, as pursuing the public interest. I think it would be a great improvement for contemporary political discourse if people with competing views hesitated before attributing the worst of all motives to those advancing those views. As Bill McClay has, uh, has already mentioned, uh, in defining the public interest, uh, Bell and Crystal invoked Walter Lippmann. They not only invoked him, they quoted him. And here is the quote from Lippmann. The public interest may be presumed to be what men would choose if they saw clearly, thought rationally, acted disinterestedly, and benevolently. There are other more complicated definitions, but this will serve. Now, think about that for a minute. There's a lot going on in that definition, but let me strip it to its essentials. What you have, according to Lippmann, is a capacity for seeing clearly, seeing rationally, without one's view being distorted either by self-interest or by passion. So the public interest is to be discerned when you encounter the public world disinterestedly and dispassionately. What this suggests is that reason can reach conclusions not only about the empirical structure of the social world, but also about the ends that we ought to seek in pursuing and defining the public interest. I now shift to the second part of my remarks. One of the things that I think characterized the public interest from the outset and gave it its remarkable influence out of all proportion to the number of people on the staff, the amount of money devoted to the journal, the number of, the number of subscribers. And that was the fact that the public interest understood almost from the beginning the nature of the times in which it was placed. That, I think, was crucial, a sense of the situation. And here I refer you to a remarkable a remarkable article in the fourth issue of the first volume by Irving Kristol from summer of 1966. Uh, it's a piece entitled New Left, New Right. And it's a story about a friend of his who comes in from California and shakes his head and says, there's stuff going on out there that I simply don't understand. There are these kids doing these crazy things at Berkeley and Ronald Reagan is just one the nomination for governor, the Republican nomination for governor, and serious political people think he has a serious chance of beating Pat Brown. Pat Brown is sort of this moderate liberal. He should be right in the middle. He should be perfect. What is going on? And Irving says, one has the suspicion that in this respect, as in others, California may be the pace setter for the nation. 
And here's how he goes on to explain his insight. He says, people always have taken and always will take the liveliest interest in obtaining their fair share of the nation's income and wealth. But what does seem to be evident is that this kind of class struggle, and it is unquestionably a class struggle, though merely over money, not power, is not going to serve as a focus for American politics in the future. An absolutely stunning sentence, because in that one sentence he says, the politics of the New Deal, the paradigm through which we as social scientists view political contestation in modern America, is irrelevant to the politics of the future at whose threshold we have arrived. Stunning. And he goes on to say, at the end of this article, a great many people would like to think that the new left and the new right are passing eddies on the mainstream of American politics and that after a while we shall all happily return to politics as usual, bickering amiably over who gets what, when, and how. And Crystal concludes, I do not believe this will happen. And indeed it did not. Now, in the spirit of this marvelous article, which was published more than 40 years ago, in the summer of 1966, before almost any of the events that we now associate with the 60s had occurred. In the spirit of this article, I want to end with a provocation a characterization of the nature of the new times on whose threshold I believe that we have now arrived. The public interest, the 40 years of the public interest, it seems to me, mark the beginning and what I believe is the end of a 40-year cycle of liberal overreaching, followed by a conservative reaction, followed by conservative overreaching. This is, and I believe that the fact that this is the end of a 40-year cycle means that the political agenda of the next cycle is going to be very different from the agenda that, on which the public interest focused. I believe, for example, that the public interest's founding social policy concerns for issues such as race, crime, welfare, family policy, and of course urban policy will be far less prominent in the next generation. I also believe, and this will shock you perhaps even more, I also believe that questions of culture, ideology, and religion will turn out to be less central as well. Instead, here's what I think we're entering. We're entering a period in which there is and will continue to be a palpable public desire to de-emphasize and to de-escalate the divisions inherited from the tumultuous 1960s. I also believe that it's a period which will be characterized by a new political agenda driven by a pervasive sense of insecurity and a quest for policies that will create new structures of security to minister to this sense of insecurity. I note that today a majority of Americans believe that their children are unlikely to enjoy the same standard or quality of life 
that they themselves now enjoy. To quote Irving Kristol once more, it is the part of prudent statesmanship to affirm that no real discontent can be reduced to imaginary causes. This sense of insecurity that is pervasive throughout the country is a real discontent, and it cannot be reduced to imaginary causes. The agenda, the security agenda of the future, I believe, will be focused on three areas principally. On national security, and particularly on the fear that weapons of mass destruction will fall into the hands of those who are determined to use them against us and cannot be deterred or prevented from doing so. Questions of economic security, uh, in particular the increased volatility and risk in the economy and the gradual erosion of the New Deal Great Society social contract that was designed to manage that. And finally, uh, and this is not just trendy, I really believe that we're going to be talking about this for 20, 30, or 40 years, the quest for energy security to minister to the acute sense of vulnerability as regards price, supply, and stability uh, that Americans are now experiencing in that area. And if I, were, if I were founding a magazine today with the aim of being the next edition of the public interest, as Dan Bell and Nat Glazer and Irving Kristol understood their times and produced a journal that addressed the central issues of their times, that is the agenda of the future on which I would focus. Thank you very much. add a few, a few words. First of all, let me say, and as you know, there's a little, uh, there's an essay by my father that he wrote last week, um, which has been distributed out there. I won't, of course, read it. You can read it yourself. There's also the letter Dan Bell sent at the final, for the final dinner of the public interest, uh, both very interesting, along with Nat's remarks uh, today. I think they remind us, uh, and, and his essay, actually, the final issue, too, uh, they remind us that uh, the public interest always had diverse views <laughs> about issues and, indeed, diverse views about itself in, in retrospect. Um, anyway, my father sends his best. Uh, um, he's in good shape and good health and good spirit. He just really can't travel much anymore. But if you come, anyone here comes, well, almost anyone here comes to Washington, he'd be happy to buy him dinner. <laughs> I'd be careful of making this too blanket an invitation. <laughs> but I think, in general, uh, he would be happy to see most people here. And... Uh, he was very um, uh, pleased to see the to read the you know the conference description and the panels, uh, amused by a couple of them. He'd be very thrilled by Bill McClay's comparison of him with Willie Mays, uh, though he was a Dodgers fan actually, and therefore might maybe Sandy Koufax would be better. Um, yeah. Partly for not that we believe in ethnic and religious identity politics, but <laughs> uh, but also because Koufax did did quit at the height of his. Uh, of his career. Um, arthritis. Well, he had a bad arm, right? <laughs> well, still, he didn't try to stay longer than he had to, than, than he could. The, um, he was particularly, my father, I say my father was particularly appreciated the fact that Nat was going to be able to come and represent the, the uh, original editors, and well, the editors, the co-editors, and um, that Bill and Bill and Bill would all be on this panel, particularly 
I said, uh, it'll be fine having Bill Galston, as you know, a little more diversity of political views. And, um, and my father thought it was actually appropriate that Bill be on this panel, both because he has a high regard for him, obviously, but also because he said, look, the truth is, the administration that the public interest most influenced, probably, was the Clinton administration. Um, and Bill was, in a way, embodies that. I mean, the fact is that on the issues the public interest is most centrally, at least in terms of policy, the, that the public interest is most centrally associated with, it was welfare reform, it was uh, education reform. A lot of these things um, happened under Clinton's watch, and to some degree because of Clinton's uh, transformation of the Democratic Party. The truth is a lot of the things that Reagan did and weren't particularly public interest, I would say, focused. My father may have had an influence in other areas, writing on the journal editorial page, uh, for example, on behalf of supply-side economics, but that was a slightly different, uh, that was never, I guess, central to the public interest, though, again, one or two of the articles in the late 70s uh, on supply-side economics and the public interest were probably pretty important in helping legitimize it, much to the discomfort of Bill, of Bill Galston. I was struck listening to Nat, just, I mean, again, this, this point, though, that... Um, from the beginning, there were very different strands of the public interest. My father's account, his account of his public interest, as he puts it, is somewhat different from Nat's account of his public interest, and that's to be expected. Um, I had I'd forgotten that in the initial editor's note, the, it's, it's said that the magazine is both, or the intent, of the, the, the effort of the magazine is both modest and presumptuous. And in a way, there was a modest streak and a presumptuous streak from the beginning. In the public interest, you could say that those are two streaks in neoconservatism, which at different times and in different people have been sort of dominant or more, more dominant than the other. Um, maybe Nat was always more on the modest side and my father a little more on the presumptuous side, though I'm not even sure that would work since Nat has been fairly pl plenty presumptuous in a lot of things he's written over the years and plenty bold, certainly, and, uh, and my father uh, also has a streak of... Uh, modesty and humility, which he mostly keeps in check. <laughs> the, uh, um, but there has been sort of, let's say, an empirical, sober, skeptical side and a troublemaking, bold, presumptuous side of, uh, the, of the public interest of neoconservatism from the, from the beginning. Um, also, difference in style among the many people associated, many styles among the many people associated with that. I was struck listening to Nat, who you know, was just a few years younger than my father. They grew up in similar, uh, both in New York, I went to City College, and they actually sound quite alike, I would say, when I was listening to that, I felt like I was listening to my father, and there was one moment where Nat said, you know, uh, some of the problems, of, some of the concerns over social mobility or income inequality were, were really overblown, because if you do a static analysis, grad students are, you know, very poor, but it doesn't mean there's a real income inequality problem, it just means someone's getting a degree, which is, and he'll end up doing fine, and Nat, put it, Nat said, grad students are poor, but they expect to get richer, and I think if my father had finished that sentence, he would have said, grad students are poor, and they deserve to be. <laughs> that's a kinder and gentler uh, type of, um, of, of editor and, and writer. But I guess listening to Nat and reading my father's essay and listening to the whole conference, I'm struck that, I mean, a magazine is both at its best more than the whole, a whole that is more than its parts, and I think the public interest was somehow, and I think other successful magazines are. It's very hard to put one's finger on how that's the case. But on the other hand, it's also true that in some ways the parts are also more than the whole. And obviously the thing one shouldn't reduce, you know, Nat Glazer's work or Pat Moynihan's work or Jim Wilson's work or my father's work to, or many others, to, you know, to sort of being part of the public interest. I don't I have a high regard for the public interest. I have a high regard for magazines. I think it's important that they exist. But, um, you know, the thought is the thought. And, and it's, it would just be, I just want to say that 
these thinkers all had somewhat different takes on contemporary America, on the issues they discussed, somewhat different inclinations, somewhat different backgrounds, went in slightly different directions, uh, and they deserve in a way to be ultimately thought of as thinkers in their own right, for whom participation in the enterprise of the public interest was awfully important. But, uh, but, but listening to the different accounts over this last day, I, it's important to remember both, as I say, that a magazine at its best is more than a collection of just the individual authors and articles and authors, but also that the authors at some level are, of course, also more than just contributors to a particular magazine. And I mean, that's also true that to give it a cat by father, you'd actually really have to look at his efforts in the journal and commentary, places where he discussed supply-side economics at foreign policy, for example, which he really didn't deal with in the public interest and where he had a, a different take in a way uh, than a kind of public interest type take, I would say, on some of those important uh, important uh, issues. Um, just two final points very briefly. Uh, Roger Scruton on the very first panel made a point that has not been particularly picked up, but I was struck by it both in reading my father's little uh, uh, contribution and also listening to uh, Bill McClay in particular, which was how American a magazine or an effort the public interest was. Roger said it couldn't have happened, it couldn't happen in Britain and I think maybe in Europe as well. He did misspeak slightly, he said that the public interest, you couldn't have a magazine uh, like uh, of general reading interest like the public interest in Britain and I felt like saying we didn't, it didn't have general reading interest here in the U.S. either. And I think the most subscribers or readers, not readers, the most subscribers it ever had was seven or 8,000 subscribers. It had many of its articles, ended up having many, many more readers obviously of those articles. My father used to get nagged, Adam Wilson remembers this very well, by some people on the publication committee and some of the donors to increase the subscriptions and his line was always that that would just lessen its influence. <laughs> but the, the, you have to be a small magazine to be influential. Um, and there's something, something to that, I think. But it is striking to me, I, I think, just listening to the last day, uh, I'm not sure, I mean, Europe is not as interested in facts, in, in empiricism, and in pragmatism and skepticism, famously, as Americans are. Uh, Europeans think facts are vulgar, and so a lot of this uh, sort of skeptical, pragmatic social science would have a tough time making as much headway in Europe and certainly entering the public debates in Europe as much. Europeans, ironically, I think also are not as interested in political philosophy or history as uh, Americans have become, at least, in the last few decades, since for them, philosophy and history are extremely dangerous territory, I would say, remind them of very bad things that have happened in Europe, and they've decided to try to navigate the 21st century by leaving behind both, in my opinion, uh, philosophy and history. We'll see if that works. So there's a fun, there is a way, though, in which this combination, I would say, of hard-headed, skeptical, skeptical empiricism and a real interest in political philosophy and in the lessons of history, return to the founders, it really is distinctively American. Uh, you do not find public, you know, in, in magazines of any general interest in Europe which are worrying a whole lot about what the founders of their different democracies uh, uh, intended or whether their thought might be truer than the thought of contemporary liberals or conservatives uh, and the like. Uh, finally, I'm struck in this conference, and I'll just end with this and we can have a discussion. The, um, this has been a very public interest-like conference about the public interest, kind of a... Uh, it's very much in the spirit of the public interest of all these somewhat different points of view and interesting debates and discussions. I guess that would make this a kind of meta-public interest <laughs> moment. Um, and it makes me think that uh, you know, the public interest doesn't exist any longer as an actual 
magazine that you can get every quarter. It will exist, I, I need to say this, online early next year. All the issues will be scanned and digitized and whatever they are, and uh, uh, searchable, readable, uh, downloadable. Uh, um, uh, at a website, we'll, we'll uh, some issue about exactly what the website will be, but we'll work that out and people here will know and we'll certainly announce this in the Weekly Standard and elsewhere. So these articles will be easier to obtain than if you have, if people haven't, for younger people who don't have back issues or uh, who, or for professors who uh, teach, don't teach at universities where people cut out the back, the articles, as uh, Jim Caesar's experience. So these will be online, the whole 40 years will be online early next year. Um, but beyond that, I do think what this conference suggests is that, if I can be platonic for a minute, so the real public interest isn't actually the physical magazine, but the idea of the magazine, and uh, that seems to live on uh, in, in a very uh, vibrant way, even though the actual magazine closed its doors a year ago. But let me stop there, and um, we have a little time here for questions, comments. Anyone? I'm sure some, someone must have students first. Uh, this is the Robbie George rule, or is this a general Princeton rule? I don't know. A Madison program rule. People are kind of, yes, sir. The, the mic is coming around. I'm just struck by the <clears throat> foreign policy question. And we see in Irving Kristol's essay that he delivered to the participants in the conference that perhaps foreign policy, at least in his mind, was important when he founded the journal. And, of course, a great change in editors in 1972 occurred against the backdrop of a controversial election in which foreign policy was a crucial uh, factor. And then uh, the journal ceased publication uh, about four years after another huge uh, hinge point in foreign policy in the, in the post-9-11 world. And I'm wondering what the panelists think. Of, are there, well, the public interest sealed itself off from questions of foreign policy. Are there places of tension or perhaps breaks on the surface where we can see foreign policy, uh, its influence on national politics, uh, also emerge in the public interest? I mean, I, I, mean, it, I don't know. It, it really did exclude foreign policy. Obviously, the thinkers who wrote for the public interest were very interested in foreign policy. I'm very struck by the following, which I think would... The following difference... I'll just say this. In the 10th anniversary issue, I think, in 76, I think it was called The American Commonwealth, which was then published as a, as a book, uh, Dan Bell has an article, The End of American Exceptionalism. It's a very intelligent, let's just say, an interesting article um, saying, you know, this was a great belief of Americans for the first two centuries, but it's no longer tenable in light of modern sophistication, modern social science, uh, you know, modern globalization, we might say. You can't really... Uh, argue anymore that America is somehow exceptional, and um, and uh, and he makes this argument with, as I say, considerable subtlety in a very interesting way. Um, I would say that that would be one strand, and that has its own implications for domestic policy. It tended to go along with a greater preference for a European-style welfare state. We can learn lessons from Europeans; they can learn lessons from us. We can learn the best of all worlds: capitalism, uh, comfortable safety net, etc. Um, and I think for foreign policy, I do think it correlates pretty well with a more restrained view of America's role 
in the world. And I do think that there probably were a fair number of contributors to the public interest over the year who were on the sort of end of limits of American exceptionalism side, and a fair number who were struck at the beginning, which some were, but in some cases more struck over the years that by the uh, fact of American exceptionalism. And that would correlate, I think, both with uh, maybe some greater enthusiasm, to use Nat's word, for a certain distinctively American domestic policies and economic policies, and also, I think, for a, a greater willingness to uh, accept a distinctive American role in the world. Um, so that, that's, that article, I've always been very struck by that article. It's also a good instance of the fact, and I believe maybe this, this is true of everyone, that, you know, no one can predict the future. So, I mean, Dan wrote this piece, The End of American Exceptional. He wrote the end, of, the end of Ideology book, came out, you know, just before the 60s and the explosion of ideology. The End of American Exceptionalism uh, came out four years before Reagan's election, you know, and the most sort of American exceptionalist uh, president and, and, and uh, the greatest expressions of American exceptionalism in public life uh, uh, in, in decades. We're, we're, we're guilty of this at the Weekly Standard. We, you know, we of course came out, began in September of 95 with Newt Gingrich on the cover, uh, you know, looking like Tarzan, you know, permanent offense was the cover line. This came out about a month before Clinton destroyed Gingrich and the, uh, in the budget showed out and they went into permanent defense for the next six years. So, very hard to predict quick, the quick, future. If I might, just a quick comment. I think it would be harder to do the public interest, start the public interest today if when we're gauging the public's interest. I mean, if circulation goal is only 6,000, you don't have to worry about the public's interest. But for two reasons. One, because of what Bill said, national security and the other two securities, but I would put the top five issues as national security and safety, national security and safety, national security and safety, and then the other two. Uh, so that, that I think that's what the future's about. Um, it's not hard data, social science. It's only a radio show, but it, it's got half a million more listeners than Don Imus plug <laughs> commercial. But it, it's a center, center, it's a center right audience we have, and we have more questions about national security, about Islam, about radical Islam, about terrorism, than we have about gay marriage, abortion, immigration, other pro-life issues, everything on which Giuliani is wrong, in my view. Uh, but um, more questions on those issues of foreign policy, terrorism, than all the others combined from a conservative right audience, which may explain one of the reasons why Giuliani's riding so high, and how could he ride so high when he's so wrong on these things which have been roiling the waters so many years. That's not exactly to your point, but I think it's, that is the environment we're in. Let me just, you know, you've, you've asked a really interesting question, uh, and I've been puzzling about it while Bill and Bill were, were responding, just a, a couple of random thoughts. Uh, first of all, whether you believe or not in American exceptionalism, and I happen to believe in it, uh, you, can, you can believe in it and still embrace a wide range of views on what America's role in the world ought to be. There's a lot of daylight, that is to say, between the premise of American exceptionalism and the conclusion that one ought to adopt either a forward-leaning or not-so-forward-leaning stance, stance in the world. Uh, American, exceptionalism, American exceptionalism is not devoid of implications for the way we stand before the world, but it doesn't determine, even in the broadest sense, 
you know, a foreign policy or a strategic vision for the United States, it seems to me. The second thing is this. Nat Glazer, in his, you know, you know in, a, in a very humorous way, talked about the transition from the sort of the, the early bourgeois aspirations to a decent life, a stable life. Uh, and I think he was talking about your father, Bill, but maybe more broadly, to, you know, to an embrace of something closer to national greatness. Uh, and I would say that there is a connection between the aspiration to greatness, greatness domestically and the aspiration to greatness on the world stage, which makes me think that perhaps the first Irving Crystal was right after all. Uh, I think, in fact, you know, in, in fact, an, an America that pursues a decent life at home and, you know, a decent and stable world abroad with as much improvement as meliorism will permit is an America that would be better for itself and, and, and the world. That's a profession of faith. Perhaps we should end on the, on the, on the note of Bill Galston proclaiming that Irving Crystal was right after all. <laughs> Thank the you all first for coming. Irving Crystal. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm editing that slightly. <laughs>